Hello friends, I'm glad you're tuning in with us here at Christ Community Shawnee Campus. My name is Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here and I get the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. If you've been with us, we're wrapping up a series in Luke's gospel where we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. It's been really rich, really timely for me. Uh, if you wanna catch any of those previous sermons, you can do so, go to our website, you can find them on this channel. Uh, but it's been a really good time for me, and we're wrapping it up today. One more parable left. If you have a Bible with you, you can, or if you're following along on any kind of device, you can turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. We'll be in verses 9 through 14. Uh, we'll pause and pray in a moment, but first I want, to read, I want to read this passage, and then we'll ask for God's help in the hearing and the speaking of his word. So let's, let's hear God's word now. He also, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing we need more now than to hear from you. You are a speaking God. We are grateful that you speak to us. And so even now we ask for that, that you would speak. We ask with desperation, with boldness, with humility, with trembling. God, we ask that you would speak to us. And where I say my own words, God, I pray that they would fall away quickly and be forgotten. But where I speak after you, by the power of your spirit, would you, would you make whole the brokenhearted? Would you encourage the, the downcast? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you make us more and more like Jesus? Only you can do that work. So I pray that where I speak after you, you would do it. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. I pray that he would be exalted in this time. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, you're right, I'm wrong. Those are some of the hardest words to utter to another human. I would bet. I bet that's true. And actually, I think the inverse of that is also true as the most natural thing for us to say, I'm right, you're wrong. I know this is true for me in the earliest days of my marriage to Beth, uh, and I, I love her more than anyone else in the world, and I did not like to tell her that she was right about something, anything. Literally, it was hard to say those words out loud. Now, I've since landed on the truth uh, that Beth may not always be right, but she's never wrong, <laughs> which are my words, not hers. Uh, but I, I won't make you raise your hand, uh, especially at home, that would be kind of awkward. But how many of you feel this with me? This difficulty of saying, you're right, I'm wrong. 
because it's our basic operating assumption that we see the world most correctly, right? That, that we are right about the way we interpret the things we see around us, that we have the full story, or at least more than the next person. And maybe you're thinking, well, I am right most of the time. And that could be true. But there's, there's a sobering truth that jumps out of this parable. And at least it's been true for me this week. It's been like a mirror to my own heart. That it is possible to be in the right. It's possible to be right about something. And dead wrong at the same time. You can be right and wrong simultaneously. Like when you win the argument with your spouse, but you sleep on the couch because you were a huge jerk. Or when you rightly and justly correct your children, but with unkind and angry words. Or kids, sometimes you are, you are so right. It is your turn, and they're not sharing very well. And it makes you want to be mean right back to them. You're right to be sad or mad, but you're wrong to get even. I could give a dozen examples of how this is true in our life. We do this as, as partners and as parents. We do it as coworkers and friends, as brothers and sisters. We do it with our political commitments and convictions, to be sure. And we'll, as we'll see in this passage today, we do this as Christians. We may be right in our theology and our ideologies. We may hold the correct moral standards and ethics we can be right when it comes to our spiritual habits, our practices, these things that we engage in to grow in the life of Christ. But it can, it can be right. We can be right in all these important and meaningful ways and be dead wrong in our hearts toward God and others. In fact, that's exactly who Jesus addresses in our parable today. He comes right out and says it at the top, verse 9. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, these good people who did the right things, and treated others with contempt. Or to make it personal, <laughs> to bring it back, he told this parable to some husbands who trusted in themselves that they were right and treated their new brides with contempt. <laughs> we do this. I do this. I've done this. And yet, it's still tempting to hear Jesus and think, yeah, man, I know exactly who he's talking about in my life. You know, we, we make this mental list. We've got these people that come to mind right away when Jesus starts, when he launches into a teaching. And I urge you to resist that temptation. Seriously. In fact, as soon as you and I have that thought of others who we think need to hear this message, we we really ought to, ought to ourselves sit up and pay attention because we are squarely in the crosshairs of this teaching that Jesus has for us today. Because the truth is, this parable is for me, it is for you. And luckily, it's not a difficult message to understand, even if it's a hard one to live out. But the organi organization is simple. It's two men and their prayers, followed by a one-verse commentary from Jesus on who was right and who was wrong. So let's dive in together. Again, Jesus names the audience, and then he begins the parable this way. Verse 10 says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I mean, it's funny, it almost sounds like the beginning of 
of a bad joke, right? Two men walk into a temple. But really, it's a sacred scene. They, they go up, they went up to the temple, the highest and most sacred place in Israel. They go there to pray. And one of them is a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the original hearers would have had immediate, like instantaneous categories in their mind for which of these guys is right and which of these guys is wrong. They represent polar opposite religious and social positions in that day. So the first guy, a Pharisee, he's a good guy. He's careful to avoid sin, sinful behavior. He's a law-abiding citizen. He pays really close attention to his theology, and he practices what he preaches. Everyone knows how great he is. Usually he's the smartest and most accomplished person in the room. You, you want to book this guy for graduations, for weddings, for funerals. That's who he is. Everyone knows how great he is, including, it turns out, himself. Now the other guy, well, it's a, it's a different story. If the Pharisee is the best. The tax collector is the worst. He's the, he's the bad guy in the story. He's despised almost entirely because of his profession, because of what he does. And he's shunned by the community as a, as a traitor. Right? He, works, he works for the man. He works for the Roman government, imposing taxes, collecting taxes and tolls dishonestly to his own gain. You wouldn't think this guy could be anywhere near the temple. And you definitely wouldn't want him anywhere near your home. You wouldn't invite this guy over for dinner. He's the worst. He's a social outcast, a moral failure. Everyone knows how terrible the tax collector is, including, it turns out, himself. So a religious leader and a moral failure go up to the temple to pray, and here's how Jesus tells it. First, the Pharisee. He's used to being at the temple. He's likely in the inner court. That's where he would, he would go to pray. And Luke says he stands by himself confidently, almost posing, strikes a pose and prays these words. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, there's a lot to notice here. I mean, really, it's a, it's a strong start. He starts out, God, I thank you. <laughs> we should all begin our prayers with gratitude to God. But it takes a turn for the worse after that. Really, it sounds more like a resume reading than a prayer. There's lots of I language in here. And honestly, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great resume. He's very confident in his righteousness, especially when he compares himself to others. He keeps the law. He refrains from sin. He's even more pious than he needs to be. Right? He gives 110% when it comes to fasting and tithing. That's the picture here. He goes above and beyond what he has to do. He is, he is your super religious friend. That's this man. So it's a, it's a great resume, but it is a lousy prayer. In fact, Ken Bailey, who's a scholar, we reference regularly. He said that his public remarks are an attack on others clothed in self-advertisement. And that's exactly right. 
It's verse 9 on display. Exactly the people that Jesus says he's speaking to here. This Pharisee puts stock in his own religious performance and he looks down on others because of their failure. And God, you, you get the sense that he thinks God should be most impressed with me. I'm doing it. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest. Now, his, his piety, his practice, the way he lives his life, in many ways, he's right. But the posture of his heart is, is dead wrong. Now, in contrast, the tax collector, we see the tax collector in his prayer. And actually, not just his prayer, his, his position and posture, the way it's portrayed by Jesus here, they are every bit as important as his prayer, what he actually says. We're told that he was standing far off, right? He, he's probably out on the outer edges of the court of the Gentiles. He knows, he knows he can't come near or shouldn't come near the temple. He knows his unworthiness to come before God in prayer. He can't even lift his eyes to heaven in shame. He beats, he beats his chest out of contrition. He is, he is a sinner, despised by others, and he knows he is unfit to be in God's holy presence. That's his posture. And then he offers this, this short prayer. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's all he says. Couldn't be more different than the Pharisees' prayer. There's no comparison to others. Only concern for his own sin. He pleads for God to cover it with mercy. That's the language here. It's not actually the normal word in the Greek for mercy. It's, it's more about atonement, covering. God, make atonement for me, the sinner. That's the Greek there, the sinner. It's as if, as confident as the Pharisee was about his own self-righteousness, what he has done to make himself right, this tax collector is that sure about his own sin, his position before God. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong about how wrong his life has been. But when it comes to the posture of his heart, Jesus is clear in verse 14. It's this emphatic conclusion. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Pay close attention to me. The sinner asking for merciful forgiveness. He is the one who left the temple accepted by God. Vindicated, justified, made right. Just like the Pharisee was religiously right, but spiritually wrong, the tax collector morally wrong in so many ways. He is declared right. It's this shocking reversal of things. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, this reversal theme, right? How can this rule-keeping, religiously and morally upright, socially respected man not be acceptable to God? And how can this dishonest, dirty, despised traitor, how can he be made right in the eyes of a holy God? Because listen, God is holy and sin is serious. We shouldn't 
baptize or dismiss the lifestyle of the tax collector here and all the sinful things he did. Really, we shouldn't. And we cannot disregard the ways in which the Pharisee's life is right. I mean, fasting, tithe giving, these are important spiritual disciplines that are designed to make us more like our holy God. But the Pharisee believes in himself. He thinks he can obey God and still have disdain for the tax collector. Or, another way to say it, he believes he can fulfill the law without obeying the law to love. He misses it, and we can too. I missed it big time this past week, friends. Looking down on others in self-righteousness. The moment we think we're better, we aren't. So what is the key to being acceptable to God? Jesus makes it clear as day. Right? The one who humbled himself was exalted in the end. This man's humble posture is the reason why he found favor with God. As one commentator put it, right? position in the temple means nothing. Position of the heart means everything. Humility, it's the only way we will ever want the mercy of God. And the parable ends with this simple, important, hard biblical principle is that everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, but the one who humbles themselves will be exalted. Humility is important because we won't ever want his mercy without it, and mercy is our only hope for God's acceptance. You won't ask God for something you think you're achieving on your own or that you think he owes you because of your efforts. I I think we all want to be humble people. Certainly none of us want to become self-righteous or unloving. And I know none of us want to be humbled by God because of our self-exaltation. It's not a good place to be. And so I want to pose a few just diagnostic questions to help us get there. Again, this is really simple, right? This, this man was exalted. He was made right because of his humility. We understand that, but how do we get there? Or at least how do we diagnose in our hearts whether or not we are in the position of this Pharisee? Because even if we want to be people of humility, we need a little help to see our pride. None of us think, man, I'm just a proud person. So I want to ask a few questions by way of diagnosis. And here's the first one. In your relationship with God, are you working from the outside in or from the inside out? Are you working from the outside in or from the inside out? Are you as concerned with what's happening in your inner life as you are with what others can see? Are you taking inventory of your motivations, your your emotions, these things like these vices like envy and jealousy and pride that can take root in our hearts? Or are you working mostly just to avoid the major public pitfalls or working hard to achieve good things that others can see? Because looking at your heart posture, understanding what God is doing 
in your inner life, learning where the Spirit is prompting and, and poking and prodding, that takes real work. Not the, not the meritorious kind of work that we see with the Pharisee here. He's working from the outside in. Right? He's, he thinks, if I do this thing, or if I at least do it better than, than the next person, then God will accept me. But that's not right. We know that's not right. Another way to ask this question could be, what makes you feel good with God? Right? Yeah, me and God are good right now. <laughs> Is it after you've read your Bible and journaled for five, you know, five days in a row? whatever that day amount is for you, or after you've increased your tithe again. I mean, you can fill in the blank with whatever it is, whatever that external thing is for you. But I hope you get the idea, right? These things that we do that we think are earning us something with God, we ought to take, take stock of that. Do you, do you need to perform well for God, or can you simply Throw your weight fully on the mercy and grace of God for your acceptance to him. I mean, transparently, this is, a, this is a real struggle for me because I should be reading my Bible. I should be spending time in prayer. We should all be practicing these other disciplines that put us in the way of God's grace to change. Right, we're going to talk about this more in our next sermon series the disciplines are, are an important part of our maturity as Christians. But like this Pharisee, we can start to think we're really earning something before God, that he owes us, that he should stand up and applaud our efforts. And we can become self-exalting and self-righteous people under, under the surface, under the waterline. Are you working from the outside in or from the inside out? Second question I want to pose which is really the big one, and it has been for me this week. Whose sin issues bug you more, yours or mine? And not, not really mine specifically, but I mean the sin of others. Are you attending to the sins of that person, just like the Pharisee, who really quickly pointed out that he wasn't like the others? Are you attending to the sins of, of the other before you attend to your own? I mean, Jesus speaks to this directly in the Sermon on the Plain. We covered that back in Luke 6. It's so easy to see the splinter in your coworker's eye and miss the two-by-four coming out of your own. Right? That's the picture he paints. We're quick to get angry about our, our children and their disobedience while dismissing our own sin against our Heavenly Father. We see their speck, we miss our plank. And Jesus, he concludes that parable, not by excusing sin. Sin is never excused. God paid a high price for sin to be forgiven. He's not excusing sin, but he says that I should deal, you and I should deal with our own junk before we point, at, point it out in others in self-righteousness. Whose sin concerns you more? Now, this question, it can, it can help us also, I think, unmask any potential source of contempt in our heart, which may not be a word that we use often, but along with self-righteousness, it is the bullseye for Jesus in this parable. And really, there are two sides of the same coin, self-righteousness and 
contempt. Self-righteousness is thinking of yourself as morally superior, while contempt is looking down from that position on other people, as if they're worthless, as if they are to be despised. Now, if I can meddle for just a minute, contempt is not a small part of our daily life in the year 2020, especially when you consider the intersection of, of social media and our political life. It's becoming something of an accepted cultural norm, I think. Now, this little cartoon should be up on the screen next to me. It's been around for a while, but I think it was created for such a time as 2020. Right? It captures our social life pretty well. Right? Somebody is wrong on the internet. I can't come to bed yet because this person is wrong. <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. We engage in this way because we don't just think we are right or, that, or we don't just disagree with other people's ideas. We think they, whoever they is, Whoever they are, we think they are idiots. I believe uh, sheeple is the new insult for those people, for our other, the other people in politics. We don't just have political others, we have political enemies. We don't just disagree on points in theology, we actually create opponents, theological opponents that we're supposed to be against, that we stand against. That happens even in the church. We hold others in contempt, and so we use our words to humble others and exalt ourselves, which is exactly what Jesus is calling out here in this parable. We might not ever admit to that kind of heart-level motivation that we want to exalt ourselves and bring others down, but then again, the Pharisee wouldn't have admitted to that either. Which is why you and I need this parable. We need this teaching. It's why we need God's word to humble us. And it's why we need the gospel of Jesus, which has the power not just to humble us, but actually to save us, to in the end make us fully right with God. Because the gospel of Jesus, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, it helps us with our legalism our self-righteousness, our contempt, and it helps us with every other moral failing, every other failing that leaves us short of the glory and holiness of God. Jesus' life, his death, his, his resurrection, it's our only hope because, because all of us are wrong, are wrong without Jesus. Jesus went beyond, right, not holding others in contempt. He went beyond just not, not being a Pharisee. He went beyond having mercy on tax collectors. He himself actually became the tax collector. He took the sins of the tax collector and bore them as his own. And he took the sins of the Pharisee and bore them as his own on the cross. He counted the debts of those sins as his own. That's how low Jesus made himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a criminal's cross, so that we could be made right with him, so that we could be declared justified in the end. The cross of Jesus is our only hope of acceptance with God. And friends, we need to meditate on this truth 
daily, hourly, moment by moment, because the self-righteousness and contempt is right there under the surface. We need to meditate on the good news that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He became wrong so that you and I could be made right. May we as, as individuals, as members of a faith community, as citizens of God's kingdom, first and foremost, may we humble ourselves and be people who love the mercy and kindness of God, who treat others with mercy and kindness because we've been extended the same. Because everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will, along with, along with King Jesus, will be exalted. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this is true. Thank you for this teaching. As hard as it is, we need, we need your word to reveal in us our pride. We need your word to comfort us in that our, even, even as sinners, even as enemies of yours, even though we held you in contempt, you came to us, you took our place, you were despised, you were made, you were made nothing so that we could be made right in the end with you. God, thank you that's true for us today, tomorrow, for eternity, if we place our faith in you. May we be people who humble ourselves in your presence with others. And we are so thankful that in the end, you promise to exalt those who submit to your rule and reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.